0: Regardless of what stage, they're going to want to see your cap table, and they can tell a lot from your cap table that you might not realize. Um, Just by looking at your cap table, they're going to make sure that, that you as a founder have enough equity left in the company that you can get it to where you need to go.
1: Welcome to the How to Build an App Podcast. We started this show to help app founders refine their idea, build insanely useful apps, scale it up, and change the world. This podcast is brought to us by you and your ideas. We fund this podcast from our full-service app development agency, Strides Development. When you're ready to build an amazing app, we can help you take it from idea to a finished app in a few months. Right now, we're offering a free strategy call to talk to you about your app and give some direction when it comes to building it. You can book your call at strides.dev. That's strides.dev. Hey guys, welcome back to How to Build an App. As you know, in season two, we're talking to founders about their journeys in starting and scaling their company. And today we have a great episode. Our guest today is Jeff Erickson at Carta.com.
2: If you haven't heard of Carta, let me give you a few highlights. Carta helps companies and investors manage their cap tables, valuations, investments, and equity plans. They work with some of the biggest VC backed startup companies in the world, including Robinhood, Intercom, and ClassPass.
1: How big's the company? Let me put it this way. In 2019, Carta closed a $300 million Series E round, valuing the company at $1.7 billion.
2: In this latest round, the famous Mark Andreessen joined the board because he believes that Carta will transform private markets of companies, not yet public. So to put it plainly, Jeff knows a thing or two about raising money. In this episode, he's going to break down the mechanics of fundraising and give you some great advice you'll want to remember as you start down your own journey. Let's jump in. I'm curious a little bit about kind of your backstory. I know uh, I know that you have quite a, an extensive backstory. I kind of want to hear a little bit about uppercase living and kind of what that experience was like, because uh, I know that there's there's there was a really cool path that you took in that that way.
0: Yeah, that was interesting. Um, I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go, but at the very beginning, this was my wife's idea, and she, my wife, is a graphic designer. And she saw some vinyl lettering that was an outdoor application and said, I think we could do this indoors. And she figured out, did all the research and said, here's what's going on. There's, there's these vinyl cutters that you can cut this, this material and then it sticks to, to these surfaces. And at the time, you know, the vinyl, it was meant as an outdoor application. And so she said, we want to take this to an indoor application. And uh, she started making all these designs that would go into a home, whether they're like quotes or words on the wall. And, you know, this was, this was before Cricut and, and all the craft cutters and things like that. But when, when she told me about it, I'm like, yeah, whatever, go for it, uh, go do it um
2: (laughs) you're like i trust you
0: (laughs) yeah so i and it was like if you can make your money back that would be awesome but she saw this as a business (laughs) and she would she would seriously just go out and share this with all of her friends and they would share it with their friends and all of a sudden she had more work than she could handle and she would she would come home and go jeff i just made a thousand dollars and, you know, she'd just been over at a friend's house sharing this with everybody. And I was like, whoa, 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 no, no, don't go spend that because that you did not make $1,000. She would stay up all night trying to plot all of this stuff and get up, but she absolutely loved it. And, you know, it just got to a point where it wasn't scalable. And I ended up helping her raise some capital and we shut things down and had this company or an investor come in. And helped us retool everything and get it to where we could automate a lot of the the manufacturing. And so we shut things down for about three months, got everything ready to to roll out. And it just kind of took off. We did like a million dollars in sales the first year. The next year we did 14 million. And then it went to like 24 million. And it got up to like 40 million in sales in just a matter of, of like four years. So, yeah, it was a... Fast and crazy ride. I remember one year we moved warehouses like three times, and it was just insane. Just because it was growing so fast. <laughs> yeah, could barely keep up with the growth. So, so yeah, that was those were fun times. And then we kind of hit a peak, and then we, you know, that was the fast growing um, part. And then we we kind of hit some hurdles and started riding it down the other way. So. It, it was really fascinating to be involved on, on both sides of the hyper growth and then the, you know, just trying to survive mode at the same time.
1: That's so wild. Were you, while you guys were doing all of that in sales, were you also raising funding or were you just complete, like was it just organic growth that way?
0: Yeah, actually we cash flowed after about six months of op- or operation. So after that initial investment, we didn't need any more funding. Uh, very, you know, cash flow um, oriented business. We collected everything up front and then manufactured and delivered healthy margins. And, you know, we grew it to about 350 employees. At that point in time, we, we were looking at selling the company and we kind of pulled back and said, OK, everything's got to be about you know our EBITDA. How much profit can we pull into this? So starting mm-hmm. to make cuts you start to cut you know making all these cuts to get the EBIT done numbers as large as possible and you start taking your eye off of growth and at that same time you know we had investors that were looking at at actually potential acquisitions and we ran into the housing crisis of 2008 where capital just dried up I mean I remember, Talking to investors one day and the next mm-hmm. day, Lehman Brothers goes under. Bear Stearns goes under. I mean, it was it was crazy times where capital just froze up and there was no capital to be found. And so we had to kind of pivot and say, yeah, an acquisition is not going to happen. So we got to rethink how we're, we're looking at the future here.
1: That's a super wa- That's such a crazy uh, journey, like <laughs> to take a company from... I don't know, literally nothing to $40 million in four years is just insane. And then having all of it be cash flow is just super impressive. How did you get into Carta from there then? Was Carta just kind of like your next thing after that? Or were there, there pieces in between?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I took a break. We ended up selling the company. And I stayed on for a few years and um, helped run it. But um, after that, I, I took a break. And I came across this company called eShares that was based out of San Francisco. And they had this crazy idea that they wanted to uh, bring liquidity to the private markets. And I thought that is the coolest idea. I love what this company is trying to to do. And it was kind of a pipe dream at the time. You know, this was a cap table management company that had software that helped companies issue equity. Which was also very cool at the time because I mean you're you're now digitizing all of the the documentation, all of the securities that are getting issued out to investors or employees, and so you've at least got it in a digital mode, and you're you're starting to kind of be more like the public markets, but a long way away from you know bringing liquidity and creating a you know private market, I guess. But over the last three years, so I ended up joining when they opened up a Salt Lake City office. Um, it was kind of fortuitous that they chose Salt Lake, and I had been following the the company. And so when they moved to Salt Lake, I jumped on. And over the last, you know, three years, it's been amazing to see, you know, how Carta has has grown. We rebranded to Carta, and uh, it it was just fascinating to see that. Out of that cap table management software, that became really the infrastructure to do all kinds of things. Because once you have that data, it makes it a lot easier to do 409A valuations that all of these companies needed. We had all the data and all the front end work uh, was already done through the software so the analysts could focus on just doing the valuation work. And so... Hmm. Quickly CARTA became the largest provider of 409A valuations in the space. We're now doing like 10, we're doing as many 409A valuations as our next 10 closest competitors combined. So I mean we've really kind of taken wow. over that market. But then it led into things like fund administration for the VCs, um, where you have all of this data that can get leveraged and the VCs can now try and get all of their companies onto Carta even those that aren't on Carta were pulling all that data in using the software. So now they have real time, you know, yeah. communication with their LPs and their investors. But I mean, it's just fascinating how these things have kind of evolved out of, you know, the, the simple notion of capturing the cap table management market.
1: Yeah. That's uh, I feel like a lot of our questions are going to be specifically around why is this information important? Um, And to give a little background for uh, like the main topic of our conversation is like at some point when you're in tech, you're either going to get angel investment um, and be able to cash flow the rest of it from there or not like 99% of the time you're going to probably seek outside investment. And I'm guessing there's probably a couple key things that a lot of these founders are going to have to present to these VCs um, in order to get any form of investment.
2: Yeah. And Jeff, to kind of give you an idea too, a lot of the people who are listening right now are, are people who, and and let's, let's talk to our listeners that are, that are at the point where, listen, we validated our idea. It's a great idea. We just need to figure out how to fund it. And, and I feel like a lot of these people are trying to build partners, right? They're building their core team and maybe even doing angel investors and and, and the different type of investors and investments tell us what does Carta do first let's just kind of let's just kind of break down how Carta can help someone that's in that position right now
0: yeah great question so at, at the very fundamental level when a company decides to you know bring on investors or even other co-founders or individuals they want to share equity with they have to keep track of that yep. uh, Carta has a software platform that makes it easy for you to issue that equity whether it's through shares or, or units if you're an LLC. But you're you're issuing equity to these individuals or to your investors. When they invest money, you, you give them equity in the company or ownership in the company. Carta keeps track of all that. And then as you start to go down the path of issuing stock options to employees, you're going to run into vesting schedules and keeping track of whether they're qualified ISOs as stock options, incentive stock options, or if they're non-qualified for your advisors. And you've got to keep track of all of this stuff. Carta software makes that easy to do. And one thing that's kind of cool is that, that if you're an early stage startup that has raised less than a million dollars and has 25 or fewer stakeholders, you can use Carta for free. So it's free for those early stage companies that are preparing to, you know, maybe raise a round of funding, which really puts you at an advantage when you're going into the fundraising mode because you can then model things out in your cap table and say, okay, if we raised five million dollars at this valuation, what would that do to our dilution, you know, as founders? Um, but you can mm-hmm. model things out. You can also create data rooms and things like that in the software, so that you are prepared to go in and present to your your investors. If that makes sense.
2: Well, and and to go along with that, tell me about the different type of investors who would use this type of information. And, and honestly, it sounds like you work with a lot of different venture firms. Is that right? Whether it's venture, do you work with angel investors, private investors? Kind of what what are the different types? Do you work with all of them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I work with a lot of angel groups, um, a lot of VCs a lot of accelerators. But in in all those cases, the investors, regardless of what stage, they're going to want to see your cap table. And they can tell a lot from your cap table that you might not realize. Um, Just by looking at your cap table, they're going to make sure that that you as a founder have enough equity left in the company that you can get it to where you need to go. If they, they look at your cap table and you've given you know, half the company away and you have yet to raise any capital um, and you have to raise multiple rounds, they may look at that and go, man, by the time you capitalize this co- this company, the founders aren't going to have anything left. And they may have to either help you restructure that or they might just kind of run away. So, you know, your capital becomes very important to investors. And the other thing that they'll pick up on is if, if you have an investor, or you know, a previous investor, or an employee that has a large percentage of the company, they're going to ask about that. Especially if you've given away a bunch of equity to a co-founder and they're no longer there and not adding value, they're going to really <laughs> wonder about things like that.
2: Yeah. Um, How do you get rid of that person?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not easy if you if you haven't set things up right, which kind of takes us back to a point. That if you're at a point where you're going to be raising capital, make sure you're set up correctly. You know, even from the very beginning, as you're starting to you know divide out equity among founders, make sure there's vesting schedules in place to where you know a, a co-founder wouldn't be able to leave after three months and take thirty percent of the company with them, um, which is going to make it life really difficult for you going forward um, and the rest of the team.
1: Yeah. And, and, and that's got to be a pretty big question, and, and does Carter help w- with this next question that I'm about to ask? Because I would say that one thing that people probably really struggle with in the beginning is trying to figure out how much of the company they should actually be giving away, especially in the pre-seed portion. Because yeah. um, just like you said, I bet a lot of companies are probably over-giving in the beginning and then are probably hard-stretched once you actually need those big rounds of funding. And so how much should these founders really be giving away and is it strictly based on the valuation of their their potential market?
0: Yeah, excellent question, Austin. And I'll tell you it is there is much more art than science to this, but there is definitely some science be, that you can, you know, kind of look to in terms of data benchmarking. So, one of the things I tell all the the startups that I you know, advise and and uh, work with is to make sure you have a good startup attorney, one that's experienced with startups, because one they're going to help you set up you know, your your company correctly. Two, they're going to be able to help you benchmark things like that. And if you're thinking that you're going to give a a new co-founder coming in fifty percent of the company, that hopefully they'll help you to you know guide guide you along that path. Or if you've got multiple you know co-founders. I'm um, figuring out what are the the benchmarks from you as a founder, and how much have you done so far to get to this point. Maybe you're bringing on a CTO or a technical co-founder. What's the right amount of equity to you know, grant to that individual? But it, then it becomes even more tricky as you start to get into issuing, you know, stock options to employees. And there are benchmarks out there, you know, based mm-hmm. on you know what stage or level the company's at. Um, what the position is, you know, the seniority of the position. Is it a, an executive level? A good startup attorney will have those benchmarks and they'll know what's standard out there. Um, there's also some great articles out there. I know Tom Humphrey from Access Venture Partners in in uh, Denver wrote a, a fantastic article that has some great benchmarking data in regards to how much equity to give out, um, based on the pathway of the company and where you're at, what stage the company's
1: in. It's a really important part though, because I think it's super funny and we ended up actually talking about this in our previous episode, but going, I feel like for most people, going and actually talking with an attorney for some people just like gets people shaky, but this just really goes to show that like this step here is probably going to make or break your company if it's not done right. And so it's definitely better to invest the couple thousand or whatever it is to have your company set up correctly and to be knowing how much it is to give away than to lose out on potentially millions, right? Um, And for some people, it's just not easy for them to understand or fully Well, it's scary
2: because they think, you know, an attorney uh, hourly retainers are so expensive. They're like, ah, we're not there to that point. But it sounds like that should be one of the first steps we take. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: you think about it, if you're setting this company up for success, even if your attorney's charging 500 bucks an hour or something to have them at least review things before you set them in stone is well worth it. Because if you make mistakes, these, yeah. And your company is successful. Um, I mean, you can be talking about, you know, potentially millions of dollars, um, by setting things up incorrectly, or at least, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands, not necessarily in legal fees, but also in legal fees to clean things up down the road.
2: Yep. For sure talk us through what a cap table is. So, I mean, a lot of our investors might, or a lot of our our founders who are listening, we might not understand what a cap table is because they haven't really thought about this aspect of their business. Can you kind of explain what a cap table is and why that's so important? Your cap table is really
0: just a tool to keep track of the equity or the ownership in your company. You know, at a basic level, if you've got two founders, your cap table is going to be really simple One founder has 60% of the equity, the other founder has 40% of the equity. As you start to get more complex and you start to get investors that come in, that's going to uh, decrease the percentage of ownership of the founders and you'll grant equity or additional shares or units to uh, your investors and then you start to bring on employees and granting them equity or even stock options, you know, you've got to keep track of all of that. Your cap table is what keeps track of the, the ownership of the company. Oftentimes, this has been done through spreadsheets. You know, historically, most companies are now doing that through software. You know, When you can issue the equity right out of the software and then it automatically update your cap table, and keeps track of where the ownership percentages are for everybody. Anyways, hopefully that answers a you know, yeah. high level. question. No, that makes, that
2: makes a lot of sense. And we, and it's funny, we, we've talked to several of the, of our, of our guests on our show and they've talked about cap tables and why it's important, or at least they've kind of just talked about the importance of cap tables, but we've never really talked about what it is. So I, I feel like our, for those that have been listening, I hope they kind of get a better idea of like, okay, that, that makes, it kind of organizes where equity. And again, at the beginning it's probably not that big of a deal. You own 60%, I own 40. But as you start growing and you start getting employees and you get investors, that can start getting pretty convoluted pretty quick. And so if you have something in place right now, it makes it a lot easier and it, it keeps you from really stumbling in the future.
0: And I think along those lines, if you you know do it early and do it correctly at the very beginning, it makes it a lot easier to have that in place when you do bring on, you know, a new co-founder or a new employee that you're giving equity to, or an advisor, um, or ultimately investors. And then as you do that, just making sure that you update the cap table at the time of every equity grant so that you're not leaving that to catch up later and then forgetting about it. Um, I'll I'll tell you at Carta, we we have almost 20,000 companies using the software now. And I think we can say that about 80% of the cap tables that get put onto Carta have to be corrected because they have errors in them. And so just that whole process, I mean, most cap tables are not correct. And so making sure they're correct from the beginning and then using software to keep them updated and corrected um, throughout the, the lifetime of the company just makes a ton of sense.
1: Yeah. And and to kind of back up a little bit, tell us a little bit of the experience that you have with brand new startups um, and, and specifically like tech. And, and what are some things that you've seen just in general that they've done really right and in, in terms of seeking investments and building these cap tables and then some things that they've done really wrong?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so startups <laughs> that have done things really right, uh, I think you know, from the very earliest stages, creating connections and networking with potential investors and just the startup community. I think that's something that you can never do enough of. Sometimes a founder will get too buried into, you know, just creating the product and, you know, forgetting about the importance of networking and, you know, keeping those relationships alive so that when you do actually have a product that's working and, and you're getting traction. You've already had those conversations, you have those relationships and you can keep updating investors as you go if that's the path you're going down. The other thing I've seen companies do really well and I guess on the flip side very poorly is validating their ideas. Um, I work with a a company and sit on the advisory board for a company that, you know, they they had a, a really cool idea and, you know instead of going out and just building the app for example they they went out and interviewed 120 customers and as a founder i think you have to be willing to do that and talk to customers or potential customers and get that feedback before you actually build something because they learned in the process that oh some of these things that we thought were going to be super important it came back that the feedback that, no, that wasn't as important as maybe this feature. And if we did this feature, then it makes it even more valuable. And so we had to focus more of our development on this instead of you know, that. On the flip side, you've seen founders that think that they have a fantastic idea and that everybody's gonna love it and they go and build it and they spend 50 grand creating an app or whatever they, they, they do. Not to mention the time and the efforts that In they hundreds of thousands spent. and then they try and take it to market and they then they go talk to customers and nobody really likes it. No. Um, yep. and so now you've you, you know you've gone to market before you've actually gotten the feedback. I mean, just that whole process of validating your idea up front is critical. And I, I know you guys had Eric Espinoza on one of your shows and. Yeah, Eric, Eric's smiling there.
2: right now listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's yeah. kind of funny. I yeah. I, I yeah. do have a story. I do have a story that's very similar. When I, so I went up to, to Brigham Young University in Idaho there, and we had a really great marketing program, and we went and did a validation. So a company came in, an actual company in Rexburg came in and wanted us to to find out what was most important for their their customers, and they they had pushed heavily organic beef. They pushed heavy, uh, you know, no CMOS, and they just wanted a really healthy food. Was their big push, and we went and interviewed, you know, four or five hundred people, did surveys, and we came. We presented in front of these restaurant owners, and their top things was value for food, cleanliness, and environment. And the owners just like sat there and they looked at each other and be like, "Why are we spending so much money on organic meat? That's not even on the list. They don't even care." It was a shocking moment for them. They just, I just remember looking at, they looked at each other. And they're like, what are we doing? Why didn't we do this at the beginning? Why didn't we validate this idea? And that's one of the things we want to drive home to all of our listeners. Validation, number one, does not have to be expensive, right? You can do it. Get outside of your own personal bubble of who your friends, your friends and your mom are going to say that you're beautiful no matter what you say, right? Same with your ideas. Now, when it comes to investors, tell us kind of the difference on what an angel investor may be looking for And what a a venture firm might be looking for and kind of how those differ, because obviously they both need that validation, correct? Oh, absolutely.
0: And in fact, when you're going to present to any investor at at, you know the early stages, I think one of the things they're going to look for is have you done the validation? Have you gone through the, you know, talking to customers? If you as a founder aren't willing to go out and talk to customers and, and get feedback, you know, that that sends up a red flag. And I think you have to go through that process of validation and show the investors that you've done that. So at the earliest stages, you know, when you talk about the difference between angel investors and, and your VCs, the venture capital firms are going to be more institutional based. When you're talking about venture capital firms, realize that the individuals you're talking to at the firm, they have a responsibility to their investors they are investing other people's money and they have a fiduciary Mm -hmm. responsibility to get a good return for their investors, right? And so they're going to be looking at it from that angle. You look at an angel investor and they probably have a lot more leeway if it's an individual angel. You know, this is their personal money and they can say, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I like this idea. They may want to be more involved. In fact, if you, if, if they've got a real passion for what you're doing they may jump in and say hey what how can i what can i do to help i'll give you money and this that can be good it can also be bad so you know you yeah. kind of have to figure out what you want and what you need a vc on the flip side they don't want to run your company that's the last thing they want to do they want to invest in you as the operator they're saying we believe in this team that they're the right You know, team to execute on the plan that they presented to us that we believe in, and you know, the like I said, the last thing a a VC wants to do is come in and run your company for you. If if you get to that point, they're going to want to replace you as a as a management team because they're investing in you as as the management (laughs) team to take things to the next
2: level. I was just going to say, talk to me about the timeframes. I feel like in an angel investor, getting funding could probably be a lot quicker. Would you agree just because it's their money and they'd be like, yeah, I want to move that forward. Or, or do you feel like that's, that's not as, do you agree with that?
0: I think that's, you know, I, I it can be for sure, but I, I think the the speed in terms of how quickly you can act is probably more on the, you know, where you're at and and, what, and the, the fit that you have with the investor, you know, you might talk to a hundred angel investors and just to find one, that's interested in in you know you know, wanting to invest. I think the other thing that they'll look at is a lot of times they look at who else is interested in investing. And sometimes the angel investors won't invest unless you know certain other individuals have looked at it and agreed to it and they end up being just follow-on investors. And so finding the right fit of an investor it's it doesn't always happen Real quickly, you have to talk to a lot of lot of folks typically, uh, whether it's an angel investor or a or of you know venture capital firm.
1: Yeah, I feel like we've been in a lot of conversations and with people in terms of like getting money. Um, and to your point, like as soon as one person actually commits and makes an investment, it's almost as if. It's just, be, it's super weird just because one person has made that commitment. Now other people are now more comfortable. I don't know if it's like, oh, I mean, if I lose my money, I guess I'll lose it with this guy, like kind of like thought <laughs> process or however it works. It's, it's super interesting to watch. And, and we tell a lot of uh, the people we talk to, it's like once you, it's going to be hard to get that first one, but once you do, typically you start to see a couple more people willing to kind of trickle in and jump on the bandwagon um, and, and start investing in your product
0: very um, common. In fact, you'll see that often that, you know, investors will wait for that lead investor because they want to follow and if, you know, if you get a good lead investor that's willing to put in, you know, half of the round, then it's pretty easy for another investor to kind of say, okay, they've taken a pretty good look at it. They're willing to go in at a decent clip. We're willing to follow to do, you know, to follow that lead. And you see that happen way too often. Yeah. Finding that lead investor is the hardest thing, and so one of the tricks you, you do see out there is, you know, if you're out there raising capital, you want to get as many investors or potential investors committed as possible, even if they're going to be, you know, a fifty thousand dollar investor out of a, you know, five hundred thousand dollar round or 000, 000 round. You know, a million dollar round. A number of those, if you can get them, and then. You know, say that you you have you know half of the round filled or soft circled, um, waiting for that lead mm-hmm. investor. Then you know that that helps to instill confidence that you know okay, others are are interested. We might want to take a look and maybe de- dig into it a little bit deeper. I think the hardest is is that you know your first investors that that are willing to commit. Yep. Um, that you could even say are soft circled.
1: Yeah. And, and one thing that's going to come up for sure at some point as you're going through and like talking to these angel investors or private equity firms or whatever is going to be uh, valuation. And so I know you talked about that just briefly, but how, let's say, you know, one day I'm just like, hey, I want to like evaluate my company. Do you actually have to hire a third party person to do it? Or is there some sort of like magic trick or thing that you can do to find the valuation yourself?
0: You know, it's, again, that is more of an art. Um, and and it's not going to be, I mean, it's going to be a negotiation, regardless with your investors. It's, you're basically, you, yeah. you as a founder may think your company is worth, you know, $5 million. The investor may look at it and go, you know, we'd be willing to put in X amount of money at a valuation of $4 million. And if you push too hard and say, okay, well, we have to have a $5 million valuation, then the investors can always figure out ways to make that work. Um, they can say, okay, we'll, we'll still invest the $1 million, for example, at a $5 million valuation, but we're going to have a 2x liquidation preference on there where we get our money back first before anyone else gets to participate then it's it's you know taking away some of mm. the risk for me as an investor and so it's not all about valuation. You might go in as a as a early yeah. stage founder and say oh I have to have a 5 million dollar valuation on this you know this company. The investor can get there, but it may not be the best deal for you as a founder. You might be way better yeah. off taking a 4 million dollar valuation and having better better terms. Again, this goes back to why you should have a good startup attorney, because they'll be able to see through things like that and, and be able to compare term sheets. Best thing you can do, get multiple term sheets. If you've got multiple investors that all want to invest and they have different term sheets, then you have something to compare and say, you know, okay, what do we like and what don't we like about the term sheets?
2: Uh, it's,
1: all, it's kind of like crazy how many different things go into it because it's, as we were talking with um, the uh, accountant or like our accounting and finance podcast, it, at the end of the day, it seems like valuations are all about how you spin the numbers, not really what's there. And, and to your point, yeah, it really just turns into this negotiation and they just call it at the end. So that's super fun. Yeah, and
2: again, it comes down to the, this is more of an art than it is a science. And that's the more I learn, the more I listen to these these podcasts. So let's, let's go into a scenario where, Jeff, I got a really great idea. I validated it. It fits the market really well. I'm going to need X amount in funding. What do you think our first steps should be on moving forward? I mean, you personally have raised money, but like, I mean, you work with a lot of startups. What do you think would be really important for me to do as my next maybe three to five steps?
0: So if you've got a, a product or a service or something that you have traction it's really about getting it to that point where you you validate it to the point where people are willing to pay for it so if you've established that and then you can put some metrics together that show you know if we spend this much our customer acquisition cost for example is x we get this out of it and if you've got a formula that you can show to an investor that if we put in you know a million dollars this is what we get out. That's a great scenario for investor, mm-hmm. right? Now, if you're earlier and you've just run out of money and you, you've you validated it, for example, but you still need to, to actually get those metrics and figure out what that is. I mean, you start to, to present to the investor and you're looking now for individuals that believe that this can work. You're, they're gonna help you validate it, I guess. If you're, if you're at that stage, it really is. It really does all come back validation.
1: Yeah. I was just going to say most people listening to this are probably people who haven't validated the product or gotten a product on the market yet. And so let's assume these people are just people who know that there's a demand for their product, specifically an app. They know there's a demand for some sort of solution that they created, but they don't have a physical product and a proven like strategy Obviously, like the next step would be to get that built and to prove that it works. But how often do you find that VCs are comfortable with the idea phase? And with the idea phase, how much information do they like to see? Is it just like a couple screens of the app and how it works? Is it like a thousand surveys? What kind of information can we actually give to these investors to really convince them to give money for the product?
0: First off, when we're talking about what you can give to an investor to, you know, initially kind of present to them. There are great examples of pitch decks from, you know, if, it, if you're in a seed round, go to companies that that have published their seed investment um, round, how they raised their first capital. There's examples out there and, and good ones. Um, if you're, you know, looking for that next stage of A, you know, series A, that, you know, look at companies that, and what they used in their pitch deck uh, to get that Series A investment. But you do need to put together a good pitch deck. And you know there are key slides in there that you're gonna want to hit on. A lot of it's gonna be focused around you as a management team. Uh, like I said earlier, they're gonna be looking at you and making sure that they believe that you're the right team to execute on this idea. But putting that pitch deck together Um, And then going out and practicing. I mean, if if this is new to you and and kind of your first time pitching, I would go to the the local Million Cups, the One Million Cups events, and present there, get some practice. You've got one in Salt Lake here. You've got one in Provo. You've got one in Ogden. Hit all three of them and and practice your pitching. You'll get feedback and practice, and then maybe move into some of these pitch competitions. Uh, I mean, there's a ton of them out there whether it's a virtual or hopefully we get back to some of the more in person ones, but practice your pitch. Yeah. And, you know, and then clean it up take that feedback that you're getting and, and adjust it to where now you're able to get in front of investors and, and it's just like clockwork. You can totally present it, you know, the ins and outs. You're prepared for every
2: question. It sounds like if you don't have that traction or that product or that proof, you need to make up with it, make up for it with an excellent pitch deck, very polished and ready. You'd say that that is that that's how you close that gap.
0: I don't know that an excellent pitch deck is going to make up for a for sure. you know, <laughs> mediocre idea or or company or team. But uh, I think a compelling story is kind of what you're going after something that's going to, you know, convey one that you have a market that you can get into, that there's demand for your solution. I guess it starts with a problem and that you have a solution and that there's a market for this solution. And then ultimately that you're the team that can pull this off and create, you know, value that, um, you know, makes sense for an investment. So again, it's a compelling story that yields confidence from your investors to say, okay, I, I believe that you can execute on this plan that you put in place, um, we'll give you a shot. If you're going down the path of VCs or even angels, they probably see hundreds if not thousands of, of deals a year. Um, you're just one of many you know, if they see a company initially, you know, it's, it's probably just one of many, they hear about it from, you know, another VC or they hear about it from a couple more sources and all of a sudden it starts to pique their attention. And then when they've heard it from like seven different people or different areas, it's like, all right, we we might want to take, you know, take a look at this. Well, if, if you have somebody that knows an investor and then they can present it to them and say, hey, this is a super cool company. I think you ought to you know, at least give them a, a shot, um, listen to their pitch. Coming from something like that is going to have a, a lot more weight than a cold email to a, a VC that has no contact. So that that's the beauty of a, of a startup ecosystem is having those connections where a lot of the founders that you might network with, they're going to know a lot of the investors. A lot of the investors are going to know each other as well. Yeah, you know, just just getting in into that community, I think is very critical of you know getting references or getting you know introductions to you know, different investors or or even other founders.
2: And I even think you said what you said holds a lot of weight if multiple people know about it and they're all talking about it in the same industry. They're going to listen. They're like, wait, 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 actually I've heard about this idea. I've heard about your company. Tell me more rather than a cold email. Right. be like, listen, I've had actually three or four people tell me about how cool this idea is. I'm actually really excited to hear it. Tell me about it. And I feel like that holds so much more weight than anything else.
0: Oh, for sure. Now, one thing to, to be a little careful of, I I have seen this happen on the flip side is that a company goes too early to a VC and they're not ready and they pitch And then it comes back to where, you know, they've now validated their idea or it's, you know, things are are going better. And the VC is like, oh, we've already seen them pitch. So in cases like that, one thing that I think you can do, you've probably heard the the saying that if you go to an investor and ask for advice, you get money. If you go asking for money, you get advice. And, you know, in that context, I think you can approach, you know, if you're early stage, approach these investors and, and say, hey, would you mind if you just gave me some feedback on on our company? I'd love to get your, your feedback. And that's what you're asking for. Yeah. And then it gets you that you, your foot is in the, in the door they've given you. Then you go implement their feedback and you update them. You ask them if, if you know, can we keep you updated? And then you send a quarterly update. Um, as, as progress starts to be made, maybe it gets to a monthly update. But you start sending out, you know, uh, periodic investor updates so that they know what progress you're making and you're, you're top of mind, you know, that, that becomes a way to keep those relationships warm so that when it comes the time where it might fit their investment thesis or, you know, where their funds at, you, know, you already have that introduction um, and it's fresh.
2: Yeah, that's like setting setting up your ducks before, right? Getting everything in line, so when you're ready, they're all right there. You can just knock them all over. Yep. Yeah, you've got your both your customer list and your investor list. Kind of, kind of fun there. I love that. Cool. So, I I, I want to have a I kind of a quick question when it comes to what do you feel like the biggest misconception is when it comes to getting money?
0: Yeah, I I think founders too often get caught up in the glory of raising a fund, you know, raising a round of capital. I I think what they don't realize is when you take on venture capital, your life changes because your venture capital investors, they are responsible to their investors to get a good return on this investment. You as a founder are now under pressure to perform at the level that they need when venture capital companies just in general are making bets on on your company they're not betting on you know that you can turn a company that's doing $100,000 a year in revenue to $200,000 in a, in a year and and they're jumping up and down that's not going to happen they're looking for you to be the next billion dollar company and in order to do that that takes a lot of work and a lot of commitment and you better be ready because that's the expectation. If you start to fall behind, you're going to start to lose interest from your investors that were so bullish on you from the beginning. And if they see that you're kind of starting to really fade, you're not going to have their support and it's going to be harder and harder to raise capital if you're not consistently hitting those, those milestones. So again, you're, you're not only on a milestone um, you know, measurement, but you're also on a time clock because they, they have to have these investment returns, you know, over a period of time and they're getting pressure from their LPs to, you know, how well is this company doing? Oh, they're, they're not, well, let's not focus on that one. Let's focus on the ones that are doing well. So venture capital is not for everyone. um, and there's a lot that comes with taking on venture capital.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people we talk to, um, majority of them are like, if you can run your business without getting capital, always do that for the reason that you, that you just said. Uh, like, as soon as you start putting expectations on the, the money that was given to you and your company, you've now got to execute and you end up starting to focus on things like getting more revenue instead of making a better product or talking to the customers, which I would say for most founders is passion is probably the main reason they get into their space anyways. And soon as it's no longer that passion and just hitting benchmarks, your overall idea of what you're doing, you kind of got to reflect and really start asking yourself questions like, is this really what I want to be doing? Because there is, like you said, so much pressure um, with that. So, I mean, as we go into the end of this, I mean, one question that we like to ask everybody is what's the final piece of advice that you would give to these new founders that are just getting started, probably pre-revenue, no designs, what advice would you give them besides validate your product?
0: Yeah, I, I think we hit on on a couple. Um, one is definitely validate, talk to your customers, get that feedback. Two, we, we already covered as well, get a good startup attorney, set things up correctly from the beginning, surround yourself with good advisors and mentors that have done this um, so you don't have to make mistakes um, that they've already made. So that's probably, you know, that would be my advice to early stage founders that haven't done this. I'll tell you, most entrepreneurs and and successful entrepreneurs that have have done this before, they love sharing the mistakes that they've made and, and what they've learned Take advantage of that, and as a as a you know early stage founder, take the advice from from mentors. Go find a mentor and let them coach you.
2: Well, and Jeff, you also forgot one thing too. You probably want to go get a free carta account because it doesn't cost anything if you're under a <laughs> million dollars, right? You forgot you forgot to yeah. do your plug right
0: there. There you go. You can do that for me. I mean, yeah, you're it's on. definitely carta, and I mean if you're looking at your cap table, um, setting that up. It's free for companies that have raised, you know, a million dollars or less um, and have 25 or fewer stakeholders. Easy way to get set up and and present well to potential investors in the future.
1: And you look like you're super active on LinkedIn. And so where where can everybody find you? Are you most active on LinkedIn? Are you anywhere else?
0: Yeah, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Um, That's that's probably the easiest. Feel free to to reach out and, and ping me. Uh, just Jeff Erickson there on on LinkedIn with Carta,
2: and as you can see by this podcast, Jeff's a rock star. He's just uh, a guy full of knowledge. So uh, we always like our listeners, you know, to to reach out and, and follow. We follow your LinkedIn now. You have such good content; it's awesome to have. Uh, also working for an awesome company that is, it could be a great tool for for any of our founders who are listening. Make sure you guys look that up and uh, kind of go from there. So anything else, Jeff? You wanted to say to any of our listeners?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll give one last plug, and that's for something called the Startup Stack. If you go to mystartupstack.com, it's specifically for early stage founders. There's a bunch of free offerings. Carta is part of that. Um, But there's a lot of different tech providers that can give you tools that you need as an early stage founder. Um, I think Venture Validator is part of that. Um, and, And they have special discounts just for early stage founders. A lot of them are free. So cool. take advantage of things like that.
2: Yeah, I love that. We're gonna to have to reach out to these guys. This is yeah. super cool. Yeah, this is way cool. I'm on it.
1: Sweet. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jeff, for jumping on. Really appreciate Absolutely. you. Absolutely.
0: Um, our time went way fast. You answered now. a lot
1: of really hard questions.
0: This was awesome. Thanks, guys. Great to meet All you.
2: All right. To find links to everything Jeff mentioned, including his LinkedIn profile, take a look at our show notes on our site at strides.dev.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found it useful, it would really help us if you shared it with a friend. Just take a quick second to text it or to DM it to someone who would also love this. It would seriously make our entire day. Also, if you want to go deeper, we have full-length videos of all of our episodes, show notes, and a lot more at strides.dev. There's no .com at the end of that. You literally just type
2: strides.dev in your browser. What else? Well, if you're looking to build an app, we want to talk to you. You can book your free strategy call and talk about your app with a pro at strides.dev. You can also sign up for our newsletters that gives you the ins and outs of what's going on. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.